0: Up on today's show the province once again with plans to have Albertans elect Senate nominees we will chat with Paula Simons an independent senator from Alberta the Métis nation of Alberta is taking the province to court and a pretty troubling discovery from the University of Toronto long-lasting makeup contains toxins So we're back to the discussion in this province about electing our senators. We took a pause for a while. We had it in place uh, for a number of years, and we did put forward 10 names, five of whom ultimately made it onto the Senate, uh, appointed by conservative prime ministers. Um, Things changed once again under Justin Trudeau as he changed the way that senators are selected. Uh, It used to be just handpicked by the prime minister. Um, Now it goes to an advisory panel that puts forward a list of names, and the prime minister picks from them. Uh, ostensibly, it is more independent that way. It's not a political appointage, which we, which we know these these appointments have been very political in the past, uh, going back a number of years. They were pure patronage, and often you would see a prime minister who was leaving office, and one of his last acts would be to pick a bunch of senators, to fill a bunch of vacancies with, you know, political allies, and, and that's the way that it's gone. There's a lot of skepticism and suspicion around our Senate. What about this new system versus electing our Senators? What's the better way to go? Well, let's find out from a Senator. Paula Simons joins us now. Um, senator Simons, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it.
1: Well, it's very nice, because I haven't spoken to you since we've each had our new jobs. So.
0: It's been a while, right?
1: <laughs> this, is, this is very nice. Yeah, and, you it, know, I mean, I have to start by saying, of course, I was appointed under the new system, and right. so people, people may legitimately say, well... That's hardly an unbiased opinion. But I spent a lot of time going out to high schools and universities and grade six classes and Rotary clubs explaining how the Senate works. And so I hope that I can, you know, shed some light that's a little less partisan and, and not just heat.
0: Now, uh, as you might expect, um, we're talking to an Alberta audience and my text line is full of people very upset with me, uh, even suggesting the fact that this might be just political posturing and a fool's errand because it won't actually move the needle. Um, They're saying this needs to be done. Elected senators are the only way to hold the Senate accountable. It's the only way to put pressure on the prime minister to make sure the will of the people is represented. Those are fair arguments, Paula.
1: Here's the challenge. In 2013, Prime Minister Stephen Harper went to the Supreme Court and said, Lots of people are unhappy with the Senate. I'd like to make some reforms. And he gave the Supreme Court a kind of a list of things you know he'd like them to ask about. You know, the, the, sort of the, he sought a reference to the Supreme Court. He said, "Can I do this? Can I do that?" And one of the things that he asked them was, could he have the provinces hold elections and then appoint the senators who won those elections? And the Supreme Court was pretty emphatic when it said no. The Supreme Court said that that would require a full-on amendment of the Constitution because electing senators would upend the whole formula on which Canada's parliament is based. And So the Supreme Court said if you want to have elections, okay, what you will require is a constitutional amendment which wins the support of uh, uh, two-thirds of provinces, basically two-thirds of provinces that represent 50% of the population. Um And that's a pretty high bar. And so after that decision, you'll notice that Alberta's conservative premiers stopped holding Senate elections because it was pretty plain from the Supreme Court that this was not going to fly. And when Justin Trudeau became leader of the Liberal Party, he inherited a party that was driven by Senate scandal. And so what he did was he kicked all the Liberal senators out of his caucus and said, you can't be members of the Liberal caucus anymore. Uh, I'm not going to acknowledge you as Liberal senators. And then once he won, which was, of course, quite unexpected because he'd been in third place when that election uh, sort of dropped, uh, he went one further, and he set up a system that was designed to remove patronage from the appointment process. So he set up this independent advisory committee, which operates at arm's length. Mm -hmm. Someone might question the length of the arms, but it's uh, at arm's length. And any Canadian over the age of 30 who owns $4,000 worth of real property can apply to be a senator. So it's designed to be a merit-based competition. It's a little like applying for, for you know, a university scholarship. You write a letter of, uh, you get three letters of recommendation, you write an essay about why you think you'd be a good senator, you have to answer some school testing questions, and it, the process is designed to make the Senate less partisan, uh, more independent. And as a result of this system, uh, the Prime Minister has, uh, you know, through this process uh, added more than 50 people to the Senate plus a bunch of other senators including Alberta's two previously elected senators, Scott Tanis and Doug Black, have all decided to sit as independents so right now in the Senate about 75-78% of senators are independent with no party affiliation whatsoever and there's still 20, soon to be 19, this is a retirement coming up conservative senators who are the official opposition. All the rest of us are independent. We're unwhipped. We don't vote the way any party party leader tells us to. And that has given us tremendous power to advocate for our regions um, in the way that Senator Tannis, Senator Black, Senator Labakin Benson and I do on behalf of Alberta.
0: OK, let's break that down a little bit and slow down a bit here. Now, when we talk about this independent advisory panel, how independent is it? As you said, we may question the length of the arms in this arms-length process. How does that work, and how can it, Canadians be confident that this isn't just uh, an added layer of insulation from being accused of being partisan, but ultimately the Prime Minister still, still picks anyway, so it can be totally partisan anyhow?
1: Yeah, you know, it's 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 a fair question. And the idea is that there are three permanent members of the committee, Um the last time I looked, and it's been a while since I applied to be a senator, at that point there was one from Ontario, one from Quebec, and one from Alberta, uh, Melissa Blake, who was the former mayor of North Buffalo, uh, and they were the permanent members. And then for each province, as sort of your turn for appointments came up, uh, there were two people added uh, from the province to the, you know, for, for, you know so if, if, it's, it's a, if there's a Senate vacancy in Saskatchewan, you've got the three permanent members plus two from Saskatchewan. You know, and this is how basically, you know, it's not dissimilar from the way we appoint judges.
0: Right, right.
1: So the idea is to make it as insulated from politics as possible. But of course, I mean, the part of me that used to be a journalist says, yeah, but who do you appoint to the advisory committee? Exactly. Are they they people who share your worldview? Um, And, you know, who are you appointing? Is it, oh, by magic, you're appointing a bunch of people who used to be liberals? Uh, I have to say, some of the people they've appointed did have... Ties to the Liberal Party, which always makes me a little a little uncomfortable, but lots of them did not. Um, you know, and if I can look at the two most recent Alberta appointments, Patty Blabakan Benson, uh, who was appointed uh, the same day that I was, was a former member of the Progressive Conservative Party, had worked on Jim Prentice's campaign. I mean, she was not she was not you know like a uh, uh,
0: clearly not liberal.
1: Yeah not a liberal. I mean somebody who had actually at one point, you know, uh, been approached by the Kennedy government to run for them provincially. Uh what they wanted to do at the time, but you know what I mean. Yeah, um yeah, sure. and then they appointed me. Now I'm not a member of the Liberal Party, not a member of the Democrat Party, not a member of the Conservative Party. Uh, as a journalist I never had any party affiliation, yeah. never made a donation. Are my views people in Alberta know my views are sort of center left. Uh, you know, I guess I'm what you would call a progressive but I was never somebody who had a particular connection to the Prime Minister. I shocked someone the other day by saying I've never met him, hmm. uh, not not before and not after. So, you know, and the, the, the challenge becomes uh, that not enough people know what's happening in the Senate or who has been appointed. So a number of the people who've been appointed under this process um, were former conservatives. Uh, and some of them are some of them are now in sort of a small seat conservative independent group called the Canadian Senators Group, which is led by Scott Tanis. Uh, so, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you look at the people who've been appointed under this system, uh, some of them are people who have small L Liberal views, but uh, quite a few of them are people who would be, I guess, what you'd call, you know, old-fashioned red Tories.
0: Right. Um, okay, Paula, the, the, the question. Why is Albertans having the opportunity to elect a slate of nominees not an effective way of doing it? Why is that not a better way, giving the voice to Albertans to say, hey, this is who we want representing us in the Senate? Why is that not a better way than this independent advisory panel? You seem to think the advisory panel is, is a better way to go rather than electing them.
1: It's not so much that I think that. It's that I think we need to be very honest about what we're talking about here. Why... Why is it useful to have an elected upper house? Uh, Sorry, an an unelected upper house, let's put it that way. What is the purpose of the Senate? The purpose of the Senate is fundamentally to be a bulwark against majority tyranny. The Senate exists to protect the interests of the regions, but also to protect the interests of minorities and to protect the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The thing that gives us the power to do that is that we're not attached to an election cycle. So we can take the long view of things. We can take unpopular positions, even if they're not supported by the majority of Canadians, because it is explicitly our job to protect minority rights. And it's explicitly our job to hold the government to account. So we get our power and our independence from the fact that we are appointed and not vulnerable to election cycles. That's That's why the Supreme Court of Canada said that Senate elections were unconstitutional. Uh,
0: Well, I mean, but okay.
1: Because because that's, that's the compact. And the other thing is because we are not accountable to voters, we show proper deference to the House of Commons. If you had two elected chambers, they would constantly be at loggerheads, the way we see in the United States. And it's interesting to note that the American Senate was initially supposed, you know, was an appointed body. And that changed over time and the challenge is then you have two elected houses who both derive their authority directly from the people and then one there's a there's a there's a constant uh butting of heads the way the senate works is we don't get to second guess every decision of the elected house of commons because they're elected and accountable to the people we don't backseat drive mm-hmm. every decision we just don't kill bills willy-nilly we we oppose bills if they're unconstitutional
0: um when you talk about being involved in the election cycle and i can understand what you're saying i mean you as a former journalist yeah. you and i both know that a politician's first job is to get elected and the second job is to get is to stay elected and that's the key distinction for me if these are lifetime appointments or up until the age of 75, you don't have to worry about being reelected. Once you're into the Senate, you're in. Uh, you know, Doug Black hasn't run again to be a, a senator. He was elected, nominated, and put in. Um, so he's not involved in the election cycle once he gets in. So the independence is there, is it not? Well, but then
1: you get to the question, you know, when, when, when uh, Aaron O'Toole says we need these elections to hold senators accountable. If you're elected till 75, to whom are you accountable precisely? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you it it's just a different other way of selecting nominees. The challenge is that, you know, uh Mr. O'Toole said uh this week that he was going to encourage other provinces to do this and that he if he were prime minister, he would provide money for those elections. I am not a constitutional law professor, but I know a lot of constitutional law professors, and I think Mr. O'Toole may find that what he's suggesting is unconstitutional as the Supreme Court ruled as recently as 2014. So the, the the other challenge becomes that if you have Senate elections in Alberta and and everybody knows as you stated at the outset that the only people who are going to appoint the winners are a conservative government, then the only people who run with a legitimate chance of winning are conservatives. I mean, it Granted, in this election uh, campaign so far, we have two candidates, one of whom is Duncan Kinney, who is uh, considerably further to the left on the political spectrum than I am, and is running on a platform of Senate abolition. Uh, But realistically, in all of our past elections, the only people who ran were conservatives, uh, whether they were of the Reform Wild Rose variety or the uh, Progressive Conservative variety. The only candidates were Conservatives, and the only winners were Conservatives, and the only people who got appointed were Conservatives. And that is not a legitimate representation or reflection of the population of this province. So you set up a system whereby the elections become tainted at the outset, because they are not reflective of the whole population. Not only that, you have a challenge that hadn't frankly occurred to me until fairly recently, uh, which is that if you tie the elections to the municipal election cycle and first nations don't have municipal elections on that cycle, how do you get representation uh, from first Nations reserve communities who may not have you know uh, ballot boxes on reserve? and it's antithetical. To the purpose of the Senate, which, as I say, is to protect minority rights, charter rights, and and the rights in the treaties, um if you if you set up a system that excludes First Nations, it's prima facie unfair.
0: Yeah, and, and the province has addressed that by saying they will offer you know, election services to First Nations uh, during that cycle to to try and address that concern. Um, Just before I let you get out of here very quickly, uh, Bill C-220, I know you've been involved with Matt Janru on that one, um, the extension of bereavement leave in federally regulated industries. Just give us an update on that. Where do we stand?
1: Yeah, well, this is very exciting, and this is an example of the kind of nonpartisan partisan uh, things we in the Senate can do, because uh, Matt is obviously a conservative MP from Edmonton Riverbend, uh, and I am a not-conservative senator, and we've worked together on this Bill C-220. Uh, we've seen it successfully now through Senate committee. Uh, it came out of committee with unanimous support and no amendments. It's on the order paper uh, to be uh, part of third reading debate, this thursday i have my fingers crossed that we have a very busy order paper but i really hope that we will see that bill uh passed by the senate this thursday and if not this thursday then maybe early next week monday or tuesday i i have high hopes although we're running up against a very sticky uh hard deadline
0: Senator, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate the update on 220 and your uh, spirited defense of the independent uh, appointment p- uh, policy that we have in place. Thank you so much. Sure, thanks, sir. Bye-bye. That is Senator Paula Simons. Métis Nation of Alberta is taking our provincial government to court. This action is being taken this week. Uh, they accuse the government of acting in bad faith on a consultation agreement. So let's get the details on this. Audrey Poitras is joining us now. Audrey is the president of the Métis Nation of Alberta, and she joins us uh, this morning. Good morning, Audrey. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Shay. Now, this is all centered around um, discussions about consultations with the Métis Nation involving the province on issues of, you know, developing lands, anything that would have an impact on on the Métis Nation of Alberta, correct? That's right. That's now, right. there was for years. There's been. I, I, how clearly defined was it? Was it just an agreement to consult, or was there an actual framework in place? What was the process prior to the UCP government?
2: There has been no agreement in place. What there has been um, for a long time, and more recently for the last uh, five years, uh, over two different governments, there's been discussions with the Métis Nation of what that consultation policy should look like, should be, and agreed to by both parties. And we've moved along in a lot of areas where we may have had concerns or they had concerns And we've moved along to a point where we were almost ready to sign. Uh, Of course, an election was called and uh, it was put on hold. And since the UCP government has come in, we have not been able to get back to the table. And it's not that we haven't waited, called, sent letters, and we have not got back to the table. What we did get was a letter with... A sentence that said Alberta will not be moving forward with the draft consultation policy. That consultation policy and the right to consult with Métis in this province is one, is one of the rights of Indigenous people.
0: Um, now, so they completely ended the consultation process and said they had no interest in resuming it or continuing it, I guess. Um, what was the reasoning for that? Did they provide you any reasoning for why they took that step?
2: Actually, that's the reason we're going to court. Is because there was no direct reason reported to us. We met. We uh, we it doesn't it hasn't been that we didn't begin the process with meeting with the minister and explaining where we were at, what we felt needed to be finished up. And uh, I was not ever given an indication in my discussions that the the the, the talks would would end. Now, What we did get was the letter that basically said that that it will not be moving forward with the draft consultation
0: policy. Yeah, with no reasoning or, or no um, sort of explanation for why they were taking that step. Um, now, this is very different from other First Nations, right? Because there is a consultation framework in place for other First Nations in Alberta.
2: There is a First Nations consultation policy, and there is a Métis Settlements consultation policy for those residents living on those lands. There is no consultation policy for uh, the rest of us um, 70,000, 80,000
0: Métis in Alberta. Okay. um. What would you like to see? Obviously, I mean, you had a process in place, like you say, it was working towards a uh, permanent consultation framework, but at least you were being consulted prior to this government coming in. Is that enough? Or do you want to see this something put down in writing that this is how this needs to work within the province of Alberta? What What are you looking for? What's the resolution here?
2: We are asking for uh, for a declaration to reinstate the negotiations on the Métis consultation policy. We've asked it ourselves through letters to say, let's get back to the table and talk about uh, the consultation policy. Uh, the last letter we haven't even got a response on. Uh, so this is basically, that's what we're asking the courts uh, to, to ta- have the government of Alberta come back to negotiations to the table. I believe, our people believe in negotiations. We believe in working with everyone. And if there's issues, the place to be is negotiations sitting at the table and ironing that out. And our people tell us that every year when we have an annual assembly. Possibly negotiate, if, if at all, all possible. Negotiate. If you can't, yes, litigation is the answer, and we've known that that's what's had to happen in many cases. It's the courts who have to make decisions. What we're asking the court to to do is direct the government of Alberta come back to the negotiation table. That's what we're asking
0: for. Um, Okay, I'm asking you for a little education here because I don't know the details Mm -hmm. around this. First of all, Mm -hmm. um, you talk about there is a consultation process in place for Métis nations, but not 70 or 80,000 other Métis in Alberta. What's the differentiation? These are people who are not living on Métis nations? Is that the distinction?
2: No, there is no Métis Nation okay. I consultation policy. What there is is a Métis Settlements consultation policy. And so just to, to sort of educate a little bit, yeah. Métis Settlements are legislated within the Alberta government. The Métis Settlement lands, for the citizens who live on those lands, there is a consultation policy. But that's approximately, uh, depending on... Uh, what I've seen in their, their uh, census taking, anywhere between five and 8,000 Métis people. If you look at Stats Canada, there's over 100,000 Métis people in Alberta that have identified as Métis. We have over 47,000 that have voluntarily come out and registered with the Métis Nation. Gotcha. As okay. citizens of the Métis Nation. So those are the people that are being left out. Right, right. Um, totally left out. And consultation is 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 in the Constitution of Canada. We have rights under the Constitution of Canada. They can't just say, we don't want to talk to you today.
0: Right, that's legally binding. That is enshrined in the Constitution. They You have right. rights of consultation and, and being involved in the process. That's right. Now, in my reading, Audrey, and tell me if I've got this wrong, it primarily deals with land when they're talking about that. Consultations that will affect land, Um, involving Métis settlements and things like that. So you're talking about that framework is in place for Métis settlements. What kind of consultations, what kind of uh, initiatives or policies or things like that do you wish to be consulted on that don't directly involve Métis lands?
2: Well, there's resource development. There's all kinds of things that we need to be consulted at as one of the Indigenous peoples in this province. We have a consultation agreement with Canada but we don't with Alberta. We have a self-government agreement with Canada, recognizing us as the Métis government within Alberta. And yet we can't get a consultation policy. They have never advised industry when you're talking, when you're when you're consulting, you have to consult with the Métis as well. We have Métis living all over this province that have a right to be consulted.
0: What is the... Uh... Give us just the legal status. You know, I, I know that you've taken this step. What is the timeline in terms of when you might see some resolution through the courts?
2: Actually, we're going to court very soon. Okay. Um, June 17,
0: 18, something like that. Okay, so we'll have to follow that case along closely and uh, and see where it goes from there.
2: Yeah, and we don't take it lightly. We don't take the government th- we don't take anybody to court just for the sake of going to court we believe that after two years with this ucp government and we haven't moved one step further if anything we've gone backwards to where people have no trust anymore that when you sign a framework agreement with us say we will commit to developing a mate consultation policy and then you send us a letter saying alberta will not be moving forward with the consultation policy it just doesn't make sense okay
0: Audrey, I really appreciate the insight and the education this morning. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Jay. That is Audrey Potras, who is uh, the president of the Métis Nation of Alberta. <music> this is a really interesting story that's been uh, getting headlines, frankly, all around the world. People pretty alarmed by this. Now, full disclosure, um, I have an uneasy relationship with makeup. I've worn it a lot. You know, you spend 25 years as a TV news anchor, you wear makeup every single day. I hated it, but until now, I thought of it as merely an inconvenience. You know, you get a headache, you stain your shirt, things like that, no big deal. But some pretty troubling news this week, the secret ingredient in long-lasting makeup, waterproof makeup, could pose a serious threat to your health and the environment. This is all from a report from the University of Toronto claiming these ingredients are pretty well known to contaminate water systems and pose health risks, and we're using them in makeup. Miriam Diamond is an earth sciences professor at the U of T, an author of this study, and she joins us now. Miriam, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I think this is a a bit of an eye-opener for a lot of people. It's a pretty concerning headline. Long-lasting makeup can cause cancer. What's going on here?
3: Well, I mean, we were really surprised, too. So what we did is we purchased some cosmetics. Mostly there were 231 products. We purchased 17 exclusively in Canada. And we found that more than half of them contained these forever chemicals called PFAS. Okay. So we were pretty surprised by that. There were there was a higher percentage. Um, actually, it was like eighty-two percent of the waterproof mascaras that we tested yep. had PFAS in them. Sixty-two percent of liquid lipsticks uh, and also foundations, concealers, other face products, other eye products.
0: Okay. overall,
3: now, just over half of what we tested had PFAS in it.
0: Okay. PFAS, what are we talking about here? What are these substances, and what do we know about them?
3: PFAS is a short form for per- and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. And what you want to know about them is that you probably have been exposed for a while from different sources. For example, your Teflon pan, or maybe your carpet or couch that was treated with uh, a stain-repellent treatment. Okay. Or a waterproof jacket, stain-repellent trousers. So these fats are used in many products. And the reason why we're concerned about that is for two reasons. First of all, there's the health, and second of all, environmental concerns.
0: Yeah, I mean, the science around these substances is pretty clear. So let's go through those two. First of all, in terms of risks to human health, what do we know about these substances and the effects it can have on us?
3: We know about some of the substances, but it's a huge class of compounds, like 9,000 compounds. Yeah. So, what the Canadian government has done is to move to restrict several of these compounds. In response, industry moves to other compounds that are really poorly understood. But there's so what we know of the health effects of the well studied compounds and now emerging evidence from some of the other replacement compounds is that higher exposures to PFAS can cause a wide range of effects. So some of those effects are, for example, on the immune system. Well, this is really important right now because mm-hmm. there, have, there, there have been a few studies that suggest that people with higher levels of PFAS in their blood um, can contract more severe COVID 19 symptoms. There's also um, concern that people with high levels of PFAS in their blood could have um, reduced, the, the vaccination could have reduced efficacy. But that's not all. These chemicals are also related to altering metabolism and can lead to increased obesity and type 2 diabetes, changes in fertility, reduced. Fetal growth, some of the compounds that have been linked to cancer. So it's really, it's like it's a wide range of effects.
0: Now, you said there is some government regulation. Okay, well, first of all, before we get to that, let's talk about the environmental impacts. It's not just human health, but there's also risks to the environment, correct?
3: Yeah, and that's really important. So these are called forever chemicals because they don't break down. You know, they, they're la- they can last for decades, if not centuries. We don't actually know how long they last <laughs> because we haven't been around. They're them still lasting. But I don't want to... Like, I, First of all, I'm not going to live long enough to find out. But I don't really want my grandchildren to be finding out how long they last. Right, sure. They last long enough to make their way to the Arctic, the Antarctic, to the deep seas. They're, uh, they're just distributed globally. Now, one of the really important things to note is that once they get into the water where where they tend to accumulate, it's really hard to get them out. The water treatment systems, like for treating drinking water, are very poor at removing these compounds. So we have to be very, very careful with our use of them, of the compounds, because we can't, once it's in the water, it's really, really tough to get it out.
0: Okay, now you said there are some guidelines, some government regulations around the use of these products, but there's not when it comes to makeup. Well,
3: there are regulations for for two of the you know nine thousand well, two two plus of the over nine thousand compounds.
0: okay, so not all of them
3: okay. no <laughs> that's minuscule right out of the over 9,000 compounds. So um, what the Canadian government has done is to move to consider all the compounds as a class. Okay. Which is really very progressive. That's very good. But I think what our study indicates is that we should be moving faster to get PFAS out of products that are not essential,
0: such as cosmetics. Well, and the other thing that I found really interesting in reading through your study is, okay, we're we're not saying you can't put it in, but we're not even making these companies label it. It's not even, you don't even know that you're applying these products to your skin. It's not marked, what is it, one out of the 17 that you tested in Canada actually labeled this as something that was in the the substance?
3: Yes, that's right. And yet we found it in 16 out of 17 of the products that we looked at. So you can't read the label to figure it out. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the cosmetic manufacturers don't even know. That's because the supply chains are so complicated now that the cosmetic manufacturers may be getting like a pre-formulated mixture that contains the PFAS without full disclosure.
0: A question from a listener. What about waterproof sunscreen? Is it the waterproof we need to be aware of? Could it be in waterproof sunscreen as well?
3: I don't know. And I've had that question posed. Uh, I think we need to go back to the lab to yeah. test those waterproof sunscreens. We don't know.
0: Very, very interesting. And I'm sure this is going to lead to some changes. Uh, I'm pretty sure that this kind of thing won't fly under the radar much longer. And we're going to see some uh, some new rules and regulations brought in around this. So, so great work. I really appreciate your time joining us this morning and uh, giving us some insight in what you found out.
3: Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss this because you know what? This looks like a relatively easy one to eliminate yeah. in terms of health risks and pollution to the environment. So let's do it.
0: Yeah, so what think? you think
3: should be doing is avoiding products that are marketed as being waterproof, durable, long lasting. those are the those are the clues.
0: Yeah, okay, so that's what you need to watch for waterproof, long lasting. Got it. Okay, thank you, Miriam. Thank you. Bye. That is Miriam Diamond, who was an earth sciences professor at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favourite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.